Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This special episode of Movies That Changed My Life is presented by Acura, official sponsor of Sundance Film Festival 2021. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha, and welcome to a special Sundance Film Festival episode of IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is director Edgar Wright. You may know Edgar from films he directed like Shaun of the Dead, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, and Baby Driver, but he joins me today to talk about his new documentary, The Sparks Brothers, that just debuted at Sundance Film Festival last weekend. Edgar and I talk about the fun of discovering a cult movie for the first time, which movie he has watched the most times in his life, and the music movies that changed his life. In other news, Movies That Changed My Life will be returning for season two on February 25th, so keep an eye out for new episodes soon. Thanks again for listening. Here's Movies That Changed My Life with Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright, welcome to Movies That Changed My Life. You are one of my favorite film directors, so it is an honor to speak with you today. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks for having us. Congratulations. You just premiered your new documentary, The Sparks Brothers, uh, which is about the pop, rock, highly influential sort of cult band named Sparks. Uh, I premiered at Sundance Film Festival this last weekend, which for the first time was streamed all over the world. So congratulations on that. So as someone who is a king of modern-day cult films, uh, what struck me about Sparks is that they are obviously a cult band. So what was some inspiration there as to why you wanted to do this documentary? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to make the documentary is that Sparks do have a very passionate following, but they're also, I felt that they were a band that deserved to be a lot bigger than they were. And there are various reasons which are in the documentary that maybe they're not as big as they should have been. But uh, uh, I guess the actual documentary is pitched right between being an introduction and a celebration. So if you're not a fan uh, at the start of it, you you should be a fan at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, so the film opens up with like, uh, from what I've been reading, it starts off with some concert footage, right? Um, and so you were working with them actively on a recent tour and then went back in history. Can you talk to us a little bit what the documentary will be about? You know, unlike a lot of music documentaries you get about bands that started in the 70s, the the irony is 
and the anomaly of Sparks is that there is still a going concern, as in they've never stopped releasing albums and they've been going since 1971. So last year they released their 25th album. And, uh, and what's extraordinary to me and the reason I wanted to do the documentary is having known who they were since I was five, the older I got, um, I was more and more dumbfounded by the fact that the albums they were releasing were not just consistent, but sometimes even kind of getting better and not more ambitious. And it's really unusual for a band in their fifth decade to sort of be able to maintain that quality and also be breaking new ground constantly. So I think it was just a part of me as a music fan and as a Sparks fan that I just wanted to know what makes them tick? How are they doing this? How is it even possible? So so that was something that really was... Um, it, 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 I, I've been such a sort of an advocate for Sparks <laughs> and I felt like making a documentary was probably a li- little easier than... Um, you know, kind of chewing my friend's ears off at dinner saying, oh my God, you've got to get into Sparks. So I thought rather than try and explain their entire 25 album discography, I thought I'd make a documentary, which might be an an easier watch and listen. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, right when I heard about the documentary, when I saw like the announcements for Sundance, I, even before uh, we had scheduled this interview, I I went to look at Sparks and I checked out um, Kimono My House and what an album. I mean, clearly hugely influential to many bands. It's funny that the first band I thought of was Franz Ferdinand. And then I went on to see that they collaborated with Franz Ferdinand. Um, Is that like your good intro album for people who maybe want to watch, uh, listen to some music before the documentary? Is is Kimono My House like the way to go? That was sort of my uh, intro into them. Yes. I mean, in terms of it being their first kind of hit album, which was, it was a, a big hit in the UK and Europe, that album. I mean, the that said, what sparks do is they keep kind of mutating. So mm-hmm. like the Kimono My House sound, which is like very much a sort of um, sort of glam, almost proto-punk sound from 1974. Yeah. Then by 1979, they've essentially made the first like Electronica album. So, and, and, and they sort of continue to sort of just be, they're sort of that band that are like always slightly ahead of the curve and maybe not ever kind of profiting off it like some of their, some of the other bands that they've influenced. Mm. So it's interesting. And in the documentary, uh, Jack Antonoff um, is one of the interviewees and he says that he heard a Spark song and he said, uh, oh, clearly they've been influenced by Depeche Mode. And he goes, oh, wait, this is before Depeche Mode. <laughs> and then he had another song and it's like, oh, this sounds a bit like Queen. Oh, wait, this song's before Queen. Yeah. So they're a little bit like that in terms of they're that band that are just like always slightly ahead of their time. And um, the fact that they've con- managed to continue doing that and, and is, is, is sort of extraordinary. And, and there's that thing where I think people um, feel, fans feel very um, um, protective of them. When I was finishing the documentary, I kept showing it to people and I specifically sought out friends of mine who, you know, know a lot about music and the business, uh, but didn't know a lot about Sparks. And the overall reaction was always that they said, I feel completely schooled by this documentary. I feel like there's a a, a whole, like a fissure has opened and a whole like uh, chapter of musical knowledge has been opened up to me. So I hope that that's something that um, people who don't know them will, 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 will see it because within the documentary, you'll see many, many, uh, 
famous faces who were interviewed, who are artists that went on to be much bigger than Sparks, but acknowledged the influence. Everybody from the Sex Pistols to New Order mm. and Joy Division to Duran Duran to Beck to Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, to, uh, you know, Vince Clark from Erasure and Depeche Mode. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who are kind of willing to just say on record and to the camera, yes, I, I ripped off stuff from Sparks. <laughs> uh, well, fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. Typically on Movies That Changed My Life, we just discuss three films that our guests uh, had changed your life in some way, wanted them to become an actor or director or anything like that. But we wanted to keep it themed uh, in partnership with the Sparks Brothers documentary. So we manipulated the format a little bit and made it three music movies that changed your life. Um, so let's go in chronological order of release date. You have a widespread of movies that you're really excited to talk about. Um, so we'll go with the first one, which is 1934's Dames. It has a 7.1 out of 10 uh, with 1.9 thousand reviews on imdb directed by ray Enright and busby berkeley who directed the musical numbers written by delmer daves and robert lord starring joan blondell dick powell and ruby keeler plot is a multimillionaire decides to boycott filthy quote forms of entertainment such as broadway shows and uh, the creators fight against it so uh talk to us a little bit about this uh, i had never seen this film um it's probably one of the oldest movies we've talked about on this podcast even um, so I was excited to watch it. So what was your, um, when was the first time you watched Dames and how did it affect you? Well, I think Busby Berkeley, who directed the musical numbers, is one of those directors who I was certainly very conscious of for a long time before I saw an entire movie. And that's mainly because my mum would talk about him and mention Busby Berkeley. And he's one of those directors that even if you've never seen one of the films, You've probably seen a clip or you've almost certainly seen Busby Berkeley ripped off in something else, whether it's a commercial or a music video or another movie, like even like the Muppet movie has a Busby Berkeley bit. You've seen countless, um, you know, uh, adverts or music videos like Michelle Gondry has done a couple of like what Mm. I would call like brilliant nouveau Busby Berkeley things like um, his famous uh, Let Forever Be video. Um, But but so basically in Busby Berkeley... Uh, is was a, a choreographer and then like a director first doing dance sequences within other movies like dames and then as a director in his own right and basically dames comes from this kind of amazing sort of i guess it must be what year is this 33 34 34 so i mm-hmm. think in like what seems like a span of 18 months there are like four buzz i mean busby berkeley was making like maybe two or three films a year or working on two or three films a year. And back then in, when Warner Brothers were making musicals, people would be under contract and people would just cast and directors and dancers would just be going from film to film mm-hmm. to film. And and you can so something like Dames is basically, there are a couple of movies from around this time and they're all of high quality, but I always zero in on Dames because it probably has my favorite Busby Berkeley sequence. But most of these uh films of these times which are all worth watching there's like 42nd street which is very famous mm-hmm. um gold diggers of 1933 uh footlight parade and dames and, and there's more besides but i just picked those four because they're like the four <laughs> most famous ones and they usually all have the same kind of formula is it's about the behind the scenes goings on of a broadway show uh usually like a, some kind of like you know especially because it's early 30s it's probably pre Hayes Code uh, censorship, quite kind right. of 
snappy and savage and a bit kind of more sexy than you'd expect for a film from 1934. <laughs> but usually it's like the backstage kind of like goings on on a Broadway show. And then when the songs break out, you're just kind of like um, sent into these uh, almost like fantasy sequences in terms of, uh, you know, in the case of Dames, you go into these musical numbers, which are just uh, so eye-popping and imaginative and so beautifully mm-hmm. done. I, I, When I sort of finally sort of saw these movies beyond just the clips or the photos, I was just like my mouth was agape watching something like Dames, which I've seen a number of times, and I've even seen it twice at the cinema. I've actually kind of, um, when, I've, when I've programmed at different cinemas around the world, like the New Beverly in Los Angeles or what used to be the Bloor Cinema in Toronto, I showed Dames, and they're so good on the big screen. But there's a Warner Archive clip of... Um, um, I only have eyes for you. Yeah. Now that is my favorite sequence. And it's just yeah. something where here's the thing with Busby Berkeley. You look at the way that they're shot, how many dancers are employed, how big the sets are, how complicated the transitions are. And you have to think this would be difficult to do today. You know, sometimes if you watch like an older action film, you might think, oh, this is good, but like now you can have like there's state of the art equipment to do this. But the truth of it is, watching a Busby Berkeley film, you're thinking you'd be hard pressed to better it now. And and some of that is to do with back in those days before you kind of had um, you know, like actors' unions. Right. <laughs> like, the fact that he would have like 40 dancers on stage or more, and you just think <laughs> it, it's just at a scale which would be quite difficult to pull off. And I, I say that because I did a video a couple of years ago for Beck um, for a song called Colors mm-hmm. where we did a sort of like an avant-garde sort of take on a Busby Berkeley sort of number. And I wanted like 20 dancers and 20 dancers, it seemed like a real push. They were like, <laughs> everybody was saying, can we do it with five dancers? And then you watch one of these Busby Berkeley films and it seems like there's some shots with like 50 dancers on stage. It's just extraordinary. But like, I think the thing with him is what's interesting about Busby Berkeley is even though he came from Broadway, all of the things that he essentially invented or popularized, like his shots, are all things that you can't do on the stage. And right. for example, one of the signature Busby Berkeley shots is like the overhead shot of dancers, which you've seen in a million things, but he sort of did it first. Now, the thing was, is he, his mother worked on Broadway, so he was like a kid growing up in the theater, and then he became a choreographer himself. But he would sit up in the rafters and look down at the dancers on stage. Now that's a shot that you, the audience can't see on a Broadway stage. But right. as soon as he got to film, he started to concentrate on the shots that you, the, 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 the angles of dancing that you could do in a musical, which you couldn't see through the proscenium, proscenium arch of the stage. The set pieces are obviously things you cannot have on a stage. So it was pretty amazing to see like in that final sequence with the rotating wheel and then even, you know, the laundry sequence ahead of that, just like all these things. Cause for a second I was like, Oh, is this like not happening on stage? And then it pulls out and they're clapping and it shows the curtain. Uh, it's very cool how he, he, you know, they mixed the fantasy of theater and, and put it on film like that. Um, yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, I'm, I'm always like, so sort of like moved when I watch it because um, it's just sort of so transporting and so magical you know, it's just sort of like I, I, I would, I would, I can't imagine that anybody would be unimpressed by it. Whoever gave yep. it less than seven point one, I don't know. I, I need to have words. I think 
I think if you're just talking about the set pieces alone, it's a solid 10 every time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you heard it, folks. Uh, if you if you gave this less than a 7.1, uh, Edgar will have a word with you. Um, <laughs> so that was uh, that was Dames from 1934. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Uh, let's jump into our second one, which I'm really excited to talk about because I actually hadn't seen this movie. This is 1974's Phantom of the Paradise. This is a 7.4 out of 10 with 17,000 reviews. Written and directed uh, by Brian De Palma. Music written by the great Paul Williams. Um, for those who aren't familiar, Paul Williams also wrote Rainbow Connection. He's collaborated with Daft Punk. He's had a cameo in Baby Driver, all these sorts of things. Uh, he's The film is starring Paul Williams, William Finley, and Jessica Harper. And the plotline is a disfigured composer sells his soul for the woman he loves said he'll, she will get, get to perform his music however an evil record tycoon betrays him and steals his music to open his rock palace the paradise yeah so i'd heard about this movie uh and when i thought about this watch this movie i had a similar feeling of i feel like it similar it inspired you in the same way maybe sparks does that fan of the paradise is clearly an influential film um, not only in like the cult movie genre, but in, like in the musical genre, but it kind of maybe got left behind a little bit um, in terms of, like the pop culture, its place in pop culture, maybe because of Rocky Horror Picture Show being released right around the same time. And when I saw it, I was like, man, this is awesome. This is such a fun and like unbelievably like cool movie to watch. Uh, the ending sequence, what completely blew my mind. Um, and is that sort of a similar feeling you had for this movie? Is that why this this made your list? Yeah, I mean, I always felt, and this might be heresy to say because, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show is, like, probably the most famous cult movie of all time. <laughs> but I, I always thought Phantom of the Paradise was the better movie. I mean, Rocky Horror <laughs> Picture Show is, like, super, super fun. And right. obviously, like, hugely influential. But Phantom of the Paradise, I think, just pound for pound is, like, just a, a better movie. And, and it came out the year before, actually. They were both distributed by Fox. Mm-hmm. And... um Phantom of the Paradise didn't kind of catch on like initially uh, at the box office. Weirdly, it was like a hit in a couple of places. Like Winnipeg in Canada played it like for like years. <laughs> so it was a hit in Winnipeg and it was a, a hit in Paris. In fact, I know because I, I worked with um, uh, Thomas and Gimon from Daft Punk. 
that mm. they they were obsessed with Phantom of the Paradise, which is why Paul Williams is on Random Access Memories. I mean, the song Touch on Random Access Memories is basically sounds like it could have come from Phantom of the Paradise. Um, so, so the other thing about it is that, I mean, the music is incredible. Let's just talk about the music briefly. Paul Williams is, is one of my favorite composers. And he, before his film success, he was like, um, you know, a, a, a pop songwriter for like the Carpenters and uh, the Monkees and Three Dog Night. And so he'd had like a, a you know, like a, a run of hits, including um, uh, We've Only Just Begun for the Carpenters right. and um, an old fashioned love song for Three Dog Night and um, Someday Man um, as well. Uh, Later then, and also then he became a personality in his own right. Like he's, uh, there's a great documentary actually called Paul Williams is Still Alive. Because um, he became in the 70s like a fixture on, um, you know, entertainment shows like The Tonight Show or mm-hmm. like even Hollywood Squares. He's like one of those guys who was always on those shows. And I'm lucky enough to have worked with Paul because I got him to do a cameo in Baby Driver. He, he's one of those people, not just similar to Sparks in some ways, he's one of those people who's a bit like a Zelig figure in terms of he's like in everything and on everything. Like what's funny is that when he was on Baby Driver and he plays the butcher, if you remember in the film, there's the arms dealer sort of, he's like, you know, five foot and he's wearing like a kind of Tom Wolf sort of Southern gentleman white suit. And uh, here's the thing, when we were shooting that scene, like different people had different kind of responses to him. Like I, I said to Jamie Foxx, who was in the scene with Paul Williams, I said, I said, uh, Jamie, do you know who Paul Williams is? And Jamie said, Rainbow Connection, Paul Williams. And like, and then as soon as like he met Paul Williams, he started singing Rainbow Connection to him in Kermit's voice, which was something I wish I wish I had videoed that. Yeah, behind the scenes footage. <laughs> so Paul Williams, though, his only starring role is in Phantom of the Paradise, where he plays. Um, this is interesting because the the man just died. Um, Phil Spector. Like there's mm-hmm. two movies, two movies where somebody is playing a Phil Spector baddie. <laughs> Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Z-Man Barzell is clearly like Phil Spector. He oh. even murders somebody in the movie. And also <laughs> Swan, super producer in Phantom of the Paradise, is clearly based on Phil Spector long before we knew that he was actually a murderer. Um, so both of those films are quite prescient in that, in that respect. Um, Phantom of the Paradise is like a mid-70s like rock opera version of Phantom of the Paradise and Faust together. And um William Finley plays Winslow Leach, who's uh, you know, a songwriter who wants to be a singer-songwriter, but Swan, played by Paul Williams, steals his songs, gives them to this ingenue, Jessica Harper, who Jessica Harper is one of my favorite cult actresses because literally every film that she's in is like a cult movie. Suspiria. Stardust Memories, My Favorite Year, like, so if she's, you know, if, if, if Jessica Harper is in it, you can be sure that it's a cult movie and, and, a, and a great one. She's amazing. And uh, so, so there's all of that. It's a brilliant plot that Paul Williams songs are fantastic and also mm-hmm. take on lots of different genres. Like they sort of take on, take on like sort of 50s doo-wop. They take on like the Beach Boys and then it turns into kind of like, um, you know, um, I kind of sort of 
I guess like sort of diva-ish kind of opera sort of pop opera. Is, I, I, I actually think that I wonder whether aloud whether Lady Gaga must be a fan of this film because I yeah. remember she did. Um, the performance sequence with Beef totally looks like it could have inspired yes. Lady Gaga. I remember she did a Grammys performance once where it felt very Phantom of the Paradise, which is which is a good thing. Yeah. The other aspect to it, and obviously this is the thing that hooked me in the first place, was that um, before I saw it, I was already if not like a Brian De Palma fan, I was certainly well aware of, of his films and I'd almost certainly seen Carrie or like mm. The Untouchables or, uh, you know, other like sort of um, Dress to Kill, Blowout. And I saw Phantom of the Paradise. I knew about Phantom of the Paradise because it was featured in Danny Peary's cult movies, which is an amazing uh, series of books printed mm -hmm. in the 80s. And then it, I saw it late night on TV in the UK. And it's one of those films you can imagine that I'm sure a lot of people have this experience of you happen upon this movie in, in the times before, like sort of like streaming and access to everything. Like you just had to wait until these films showed up. And then I think Phantom of Paris was showing on TV, like at 11 o'clock at night or later. <laughs> and it's like that perfect, like midnight movie. And I think I probably watched it when I was like 15 and was just like absolutely floored by this film. And because it's like, you're watching it late night and you don't know anybody else that's seen it, you start to feel kind of like you, you know, kind of, um, you own it in a way. I think for people feel that a lot, a lot about cult films. So mm -hmm. it would just be that thing that then you sort of, and it's not dissimilar to Sparks because you sort of make fr friends through, through films and you even can like figure out which people are into it or not. Like I think even before I met Guillermo del Toro, I figured out that he must be a Phantom of the Paradise fan. And I, and I was right. He, in fact, Guillermo del Toro owns one of the Phantom masks. Wow. So like, yeah, he has that prop at his house. Um, so I just say about Brian De Palma, on top of the amazing plot, the songs, brilliant cast, Brian De Palma's direction of it is incredible. Yeah. And you have to understand that this is Brian De Palma, I think, at the sort of the... His sixth oh, feature film. Yeah, but coming, coming close to the height of his powers in the... Mm -hmm. It's not a big budget film... But Brian De Palma's ambition is completely unbridled by the budget. It's just like Brian De Palma is sort of going all out like he's almost making Citizen Kane. <laughs> like, <laughs> And you get to see like early signs of his genius, right? You get to see uh, he has his split screen, which becomes one of his signature moves. Uh, you get to see the handheld wide angle sort of chase sequences. Just like a lot of things where you're like, huh. Like he knew what his vision was so early in his career with like this weird movie uh, before his like mega fame, which when I was watching it, I was like, oh, like you could not not tell someone who directed this movie. And after a couple sequences, you're like, oh, yeah, this is like clearly Brian De Palma, which I thought was really interesting to watch. It's also interesting because Brian De Palma um, wrote this as well. And it's yeah. a really funny screenplay because you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't necessarily think of Brian De Palma being like a. a um, you know, kind of a humorist, but it's a really great satirical screenplay and it has some really memorable lines in it. Like the, we haven't mentioned as well one other cast member who's also kind of a part of the cult iconography of this film is Garrett Graham, who plays Beef, who's like an <laughs> Alice Cooper esque um, glam rock star that's brought in to kind of shock uh, the sort of like the teen audience and. Um, and, you know, like the Phantom immediately sets upon like wiping him out because he wants <laughs> Jessica Harper to sing his songs. But Garrett Graham's uh, comic performance, and he's only really in the film for like 25 minutes or something or 20 minutes. He's just extraordinary in every scene. 
And one of my favorite lines from the film is like, Garrett Graham gets freaked out after seeing the Phantom and tries to <laughs> ditch this concert and he's trying to leave and the promoter's trying to stop him and accuses him of being, uh, that he didn't see it, he didn't see the Phantom, he's high. And right. uh, Garrett Graham goes, I know drugs real from real real. <laughs> this is like a line that always sticks in my head. I know, he goes, I know drugs real from real real. Anyway, yeah. it's a really funny film and it's just look, like kind of just, it, it, I think any like young filmmaker watching it will probably feel the same way I did. It's, it's mm -hmm. amazing to watch somebody incredibly talented who doesn't have the budget to quite pull off his ideas, but doesn't let that stop him. And so it's that thing when you watch a low budget film that has this much ambition, it's, it's really like just inspiring because you think like, uh, well, you know, you can't you can't let kind of a low budget kind of impede you from going for it. And mm -hmm. Brian De Palma just kind of like just lets fly with like a million ideas. <laughs> My last thing on this is that when I was watching it, there's so many. Obviously, the film is like ingrained with sort of like a pop culture winks and nods. Um, like one thing that stuck out to me that reminded me of your films is that when um the Phantom, he first goes to the record labels. It's like, I have a meeting with Swan. They open up like the drawer of like the list of who's allowed to speak with them. And it's like a whole bunch of like famous uh, musicians or celebrities at the time. Bette Midler is one of them, I remember. Right. And immediately I was like, that is something Edgar Wright would do. Like he would pull something up and just have like a list of celebrities like for a flash second. And only if you knew to look for it, like it would be there. Um, so when I saw that, I kind of had like a you know, a little like click, like, aha, like this is obviously, a re you know, something that resonates w with you as, as a filmmaker, you know. Which Good one for IMDb is like, look out for the production designer is Jack Fisk. Hmm. And uh, the set painter was his uh, uh, future wife, Sissy Spacek, to, oh. le to two, two, uh, two films later starring in Brian De Palma's Carrie. But it's right. always amazing when you look at the credits of uh, Fats of the Paradise rolling past. And uh, also in the final sequence, one of the dancers in the kind of freak out wedding scene is, Be <laughs> is Beck's mum, B.B. Ha Hanson. And Beck, because uh, uh, I did a, vi a video with him, he's a you right. know, friend of mine. He remembers vaguely being on set when he was like three years old. <laughs> bringing a child to that sequence. Uh, the wedding of all weddings uh, in, in film, I will say. I was com completely like in awe of that whole sequence. It was so cool. So thank you for having me finally watch this movie. It had been on my list for a while. Um, and once again, that was 1974's Phantom of the Paradise. All right, so let's go to the final film we want to talk about, which is the iconic 1984 mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. It has a 7.9 out of 11 on IMDb with 128,000 ratings written and directed by Rob Reiner, and written and starring Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. Uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, uh, it is a mockumentary about a band called Spinal Tap, one of England's loudest bands. Uh, it is chronicled by the faux film director, Marty DeBerge, which I laugh every time I hear that name. I don't know why, it's just so funny to me, uh, on what proves to be the band's uh, fateful tour. So talk to us about Spinal Tap. I mean, obviously, if we're talking about important cult movies, this is also probably on the top three for most people's lists, if not number one. So what was it about Spinal Tap that really like stuck with you and, and inspired you? Spinal Tap, I mean, it's, it's, you have to sort of contextualize it in a way because it's become so famous, but you have to understand that this was sort of the first time that somebody had done a mockumentary film. I mean, I really feel like uh, it is one of the most influential comedy films of all time because in film uh, and also in TV, 
it's sort of fair to say that without like um what kind of Rob Reiner did with this or then what Christopher Guest did later with his own mockumentaries, you know, that really inspired sort of um a lot of like especially TV comedy. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think like things like The Office, the original version would exist without kind of like Spinal Tap or like Christopher Guest's work. Um Spinal Tap which was made in 1984. I, you know, I was 10 in 1984, so I didn't see it until it was on UK TV. And I saw, I think I saw it when I was probably like 13 in 1987. I remember it was on at Christmas on the BBC. And I saw, this is before there were like the internet and there were many film magazines. So I wasn't really au fait with it at all, what it was. So I saw it almost completely cold. And as a 13 year old in the UK, none of the people in it at that time, I was even aware who they were. It was so sort of close. I mean, now, obviously, those people like Michael McKean and like Christopher Guest, uh, you know, and Rob Reiner, especially Rob Reiner in the States was on All in the Family, right? I, which was not, which was not, yeah. uh, which was not a, sh- a big show in the, in the UK at all. Anyway, I watched this film and all of these people are new to me and I'm just kind of like flabbergasted by what is this film? Who are these people? Like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And, and it is one of those films where it's really only, it's only 82 minutes long, but it's crammed with so much memorable dialogue. And I actually rewatched it the other day because my girlfriend had never seen it. And, um, she'd actually seen some of the later Christopher Guest films. So she was kind of shocked to, um, when I when I pointed out that Nigel Tufnell was uh, the guy from Best of Show talking about nuts, <laughs> like right. or uh, Harlan, Harlan Pepper, that's his name, uh, yeah. or like um, Cocky Sinclair from Waiting for Government. Right. Um, anyway, like it's just uh, it's just an extraordinary sort of piece of work because they managed to make it feel sort of so lived in and so real, and and again that sort of style of uh, of doing like mockumentaries like this that are sort of feel so real in terms of the coverage and the level of performance, especially in comparison to sort of other um, comedy films at the time, you know, it's, it's really underplayed. It's very naturalistic. And you sort of, I think when I first saw it, it was that thing where you had to sort of tune your ear to sort of like a new wave of doing comedy. I mean, ironically, weirdly, in the UK, there was a, a, a British comedy that preceded by two years. But I, I have a feeling, because I know Spinal Tap existed before that, but there's this uh, TV show um, with a lot of the same people from the young ones called Comic Strip Presents. And in 1982, they did an hour-long um, episode called Bad News. Maybe it's half an hour, actually. And then later there was one called Bad News on Tour, which is about like a terrible British rock band, like trying to, trying to get their foot in the door. I mean, so there's that thing. I don't think Spinal Tap ripped off Bad News. I don't think that's possible. And also Spinal Tap is so sort of more fully realized as a thing because what I think they do in Spinal Tap brilliantly is create the whole kind of um, history and discography of the band. So you could be forgiven for thinking. I'm sure there's probably some people who watched it thinking it was real initially because yeah. it, it's, it's, so, <laughs> it's so brilliantly played. And also the details are like funny, but not that far from what people were actually doing. The lyrics in Spinal Tap songs or, 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 or song titles or the album covers or the album titles are not a million miles away from what bands like Judas Priest or saxon or the scorpions were doing so it's kind of that thing where it's just brilliantly sort of close to the bone 
and I think sort of it just it, it immediately became like a, a, a cult item, and I, I'm I'm sure probably became more of a hit through like uh, VHS and mm-hmm. TV showings than maybe it was at the cinema. I certainly I thought about it the other day when I was watching. It, I was thinking this might be the film that I've watched the most in my lifetime, but I I can't remember if I've ever seen it at the cinema. Maybe I have seen it at the cinema once, but it's just one that I've watched a lot. And it, even the other day I was watching it. And maybe because I'd watched kind of like I'd recorded it off the TV or I had a crappy like VHS at one point. <laughs> so sometimes the most famous lines in the film aren't even on screen. There was one line that I hadn't heard the other day. I, I didn't remember it. Is Michael McKean has been talking to his girlfriend who's very new agey. And he said, uh, Janine said uh, she could tell I've been eating sugar. She said my voice. <laughs> sound, she said my voice sounded fat. Like that, just like, I just thought, wow, I didn't remember that line, you know, but it, it, it it's that thing where like, I knew it so well, like the just little things like, I don't know, it's just, um, it's just endlessly, endlessly quotable. And it's so extraordinary, like the process they must have gone through to get down to 82 minutes of like pure gold. I mean, it, yeah. it really like stands head and shoulders, like, Again, if you've never seen it and you watch it, you have to contextualize it that this is 1984 and this came before all of those shows that are similar and all those other films that are similar. And they really like kind of like broke some new ground. But it, oh my God, does it stand up? I mean, I just, <laughs> I just, uh, I don't know. It's just like there's so many little bits in it that just um, I think about on a daily basis. And I even thought the other day, I think I wrote something on Twitter about it, that it's, it's my, um, it's my kind of like a contentious pick for um, <laughs> best end line of a movie. Like it's in the final, final bit, like uh, Rob Reiner's talking to Christopher Guest about what would he do if he, um, you know, wasn't a rock star. And Christopher Guest starts talking about, I think I'd like to work in a, in a clothes shop or a chapeau shop and then starts acting out being like a clothes shop assistant. You know, um, what size are you, sir? Do you like, do you wear black? And then um, Rob Reiner says, he goes, do you think you'd really be happy doing that? And Christopher Guest goes, well, I don't know. What are the hours? And then just stop. And then it just, the film just stops dead. I always thought, what an amazing ending. I don't know. What are the hours? It just stops dead. Also, I have to say, as a Brit, uh, here's another one to put it at the top of this list, if somebody wants to make this list. Best, Ameri- best British accent by American actors, period. Mm, okay. Nice. Like uh, Michael, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, and Christopher Guest, their English accents are so bang on. It's amazing. To- Tony Hendra is British, and the woman playing Janine, I've forgotten her name, the actress who plays Janine, she's British too. And I think so is the guy who plays the drummer. But uh, McKean and Guest and Shearer, their accents are amazing. So McKean, Gashir, and then Dick Van Dyke right at number four there. That's that's the order of the, uh, the best British accents. <laughs> Dick Dick Van Dyke, Don Cheadle in Ocean's Eleven, and Keanu Reeves in Bram Stoker's Dracula are not ranked on the great British accent list. I'd say the other great British accents, I'd say I'd give, like, the ones that people... I love Ocean's Eleven. In fact, I like all the Ocean's films. And the only thing... The even the only like thing that rankles for me is like Don Cheadle's Cockney accent is is so strange. <laughs> but anyway, no, Shearer, McKean, and Guest, especially Guest. I mean, Christopher Guest doing Nigel Tufnell to me is just like comic nirvana. <laughs> yeah. You know, for me, the the 
thing with Spinal Tap is like when I watched it and we were talking about movies that like make you feel like you own it. I mean, I remember watching Spinal Tap. I must have I've obviously rented it from like a blockbuster when I was younger, maybe like 10 years old. I got the VHS. And when I watched it, I knew like I'm like kind of cool for like watching this movie. Like I didn't get all the jokes, but when I watched it, I was like, oh, yeah, this isn't a movie a lot of people have seen before. And I thought it was cool. And I feel like uh, your films are like a lot of people who are maybe just getting into movies or haven't really heard of like indie or cold films have like a similar effect on people. Like when people see Shaun of the dead and like their friends that know about it, they're like, Oh, like you guys haven't seen Shaun of the dead. Like, Oh, I, I, do you like movies? You know? Uh, so it's, it's kind of like a similar effect there. So again, like I really love when these movies sort of match my interpretation of my guests films. And so this was, you know, well, I mean, that's the way I feel about sparks is sparks to me when it, as a band, you can enjoy them on a superficial level of just the music. But even as a kid, even when I was five or six years old, listening to like some of their singles when I was really young, I didn't understand the lyrics, but I wanted to. I wanted to be smart enough to understand what the joke was. Mm -hmm. And in a way, there's that thing where I feel like some of these movies, and I'd equate Sparks even with like when I used to listen to Monty Python albums or watch the show, especially like listen to the albums, is that I didn't understand all of it. I didn't understand all the references, but I wanted to. And I think sometimes some of these films are films that make you, they don't make you feel dumb. They make you want to be smarter. Mm. So you want to kind of learn through these movies. And I, I think you could say that about, um, you know, the things we've been talking about today. And you could say the same with Sparks is that thing is that you, you listen to it and it's saying, I don't entirely understand this, but I love it. And I'll come <laughs> to, I'll come to love it even more. Perfect. Uh, and so last question here is, uh, so with Dames, Phantom of the Paradise, and this is Spinal Tap, do you see a through line between all these films uh, as to why you would like, you you wanted to sort of discuss these on, on today's episode? I think they're all things which uh, probably in a similar way to, you know, like why I've made this documentary about Sparks is that they're all like movies that like, like you just said, is that you, once you've seen them, you want to make other people watch them. It's like sort of like it, it's just sort of it's it's that's what being a, a cult is or being a sort of like fandom where it's that thing of like, oh, my God. And then you can't wait to show it to somebody who's never seen it. So if somebody hasn't seen Phantom of the Paradise, who I know is going to love it, I'm so excited to show it to them. Or like somebody's never seen a Busby Berkeley film and they go, oh, my mm -hmm. God, sit down prepare to have your mind blown or like they've never seen spinal tap is like oh my god you're gonna love this i think that's the thing what which a lot of things that you feel like um um you know it's that thing is rather than be possessive about something all you want to do is be an evangelist for it mm. so that would be the same thing with these three movies and also uh, sparks the you know the, the the documentary i've made is basically me being an evangelist for them well, perfect thank you so much this was a ton of fun i'm glad we got to talk today um looking forward to watching the sparks brothers this weekend and for folks who aren't lucky enough to have you know get a chance to watch or stream sundance this weekend uh, make sure you keep an eye out for it coming hopefully later this year then yeah absolutely thanks for having me today thanks a lot appreciate it edgar bye Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcast for more content on Edgar and to easily add the movies that changed his life to your IMDb watch list. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.